0: Good to be with you, John chapter 6, we're up here in Oregon still, lumberjack company, country, country, I had my first taste of the authentic lumberjack culture in northern Wisconsin, Uh, they have a lot of mills up there and such and uh, my first taste of them was several years ago. And uh, saw this just giant of a man, big, muscular, hairy, and uh, he was just huge, big fingers, big guy. And uh, I was at upper uh, the UP doing a camp, and uh, I mean, he probably would have died of a heart attack if he'd have chased me more than fifty feet. Uh, But he was stronger than an ox, and he's in the back of this big bed of this truck. He comes over and he grabs these. 55-gallon drum barrels full of water. And he's squatting down and grabbing them and picking them up and setting them on this truck. And I was like, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> that's ridiculous. And he was just, he wasn't really in shape, but he was just this gnarly, tough, strong, big guy. So I've been walking in fear and trembling have I been here. And Be careful who I ride, the tailgate of people and those kind of things. I'm in lumberjack company. I could pick up my motorhome and throw it around. So, I'm an Indiana boy, but it's good to be with you nonetheless. Indiana, that's where real basketball's from, in case you know, uh, in case you wonder. <laughs> it's good to be with you. I uh, want you to look with me this week, and I want to just kind of familiarize you, if I can, a little bit with uh, John chapter 6, which is uh, a really crucial chapter in the gospel according to John. We've been studying John's gospel since uh, we're in college and uh, really got into this book. Uh, primarily because of a Greek class that I took. Um, I was really nervous about taking Greek. It wasn't really too hot in English. but uh, So I was sitting in this Greek class, which requ- was required for graduation. And uh, in the class, the beginning, they they said, we're going to start in John's Gospel because it has some of the simplest Greek to work with in the New Testament. And I said, well, that's my book. That's what I'll study. And so I began to work my way through the book, and we've been studying it since that time. And we're in John chapter 6. And I want to just familiarize you just briefly, if I can, with the chapter. It's a very crucial chapter in John's gospel. Um, The actual narrative, which is the story that John is telling, begins at chapter 1, verse 19. The first 18 verses of the gospel are given uh, as a prologue which is a word before. It's kind of an introduction to the book. So the actual story begins at verse 19. And the first major transition in the gospel happens at chapter 6, which uh, is really odd, the, the format or the outlying of the book. It seems a little over two years, if not two and a half years of Jesus' ministry takes place within the first six chapters of this gospel. So it's an enormous amount of time. You've got a couple significant feasts that take place and we suggest that they're both Passovers, which again would suggest that you've had over two years uh, that's taking place. And um, there's been a building progress that's been taking uh, place in this two and a half years. Jesus has been preaching. He's been doing miracles. He's been in and out of Galilee. He's been in and out of uh, Judea. And so he's been traveling around. He's gathered his disciples during this time. And up through chapter 6, you have a large following of people. Uh, Jesus has a large following of people, people that's followed him around, they've heard his preaching, and they're believing in his message. And so what John has been doing over the first six chapters is he's been introducing this, he's been crystallizing, and that's kind of an odd word, but he's been really bringing to the forefront what exactly is Jesus talking about. This is really significant. When it comes down to it, what does it mean to be a Christian? I mean, really, what are we talking about? And he deals with that really aggressively in this this chapter. And I've really been taken with this chapter because this chapter is filled with a couple different groups of people. Uh, But one group that I've been really interested in is this 5,000 crowd. And why I've been interested in the 5,000 crowd is because the 5,000 crowd is the group that's following Jesus. And although they think they're disciples, they're not disciples. Uh, they think they're followers, they're not followers. If I'd use maybe more familiar language for us, they're those who, though they think they're Christians, are not Christians. Uh, and it's interesting to me. They're doing a lot of the things that, you know, disciples, that Christians do. But see, you can do a lot of the things that Christians do and not be a Christian. Uh, now that's, that's kind of maybe a difficult concept, concept to grasp. And uh, we see this from week to week in churches. Now, obviously, we're not talking about your church, but all the other churches in the world. It's interesting that there are groups, or there are individuals who come on Sunday, and though they think they're in, probably they're not in. And you would ask them, or or if you would talk with them, why they think they're in, why they call themselves Christians, is because, well, they do the things that Christians do. Uh, They go to church on Sunday. Uh, They pay their tithe. Uh, They don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. Uh, They don't lie. They don't steal. They wear the right kind of clothing. They sing the right kind of songs. Uh, You know, they have the right kind of statements. They part their hair on the right side of the head. Those kinds of things. But, and all those things are wonderful, and we understand Christians embrace a lot, if not all of that. But, again, you can do all the things that a Christian does and not be a Christian. Because Christianity is more than just an aligning of activities in your life. It's more than just jumping through a series of hoops. And he nails that. See, he really gets at this group here. And I want to walk through a lot of that with you this week. And we're going to really hit it hard this morning and this evening. And I'm hoping that uh, uh, you'll want to be back uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Uh, and we're just going to flush out this chapter. But uh, let me give you a working breakdown of the chapter if I can. We divided it up into four sections. It makes it easier to swallow the chapter, kind of easier to understand it. makes it easy to understand it. Um, again, four, four divisions. Uh, the first division in the chapter comes with this feeding of the 5,000 miracle, which is a really significant miracle uh, in the life of Jesus. We know that there are um, uh, several miracles that Jesus does, but we also know that not every miracle that Jesus performs is detailed or explained to us or even presented in each gospel. Some gospels have miracles that other gospels do not. But that's really not so with the feeding of the 5,000. It is in all four gospels. And that's really significant. The feeding of the 4,000 isn't, but the feeding of the 5,000 is. It's one of the few miracles that's in all four Gospels. But it's not only significant because it's in all four Gospels, it's significant because every time this miracle appears in a Gospel, it always appears in a critical transition point within the Gospel. Okay? In John's Gospel, this miracle sets out almost a weeding out period. And that's really aggressive language. But it's almost a weeding out period to this group. Again, you have 5,000 people at least, if not more, that are following Jesus around, declaring him to be king. And Jesus is really aggressive with them and he lays out what it means to be uh, for him to be their king. And some respond yes and some respond no. The vast majority of them respond no. The kind of king that they want is not the kind of king that Jesus came to be. And the kind of king that Jesus wants to be in their life is not the kind of king they're looking for. In fact, by the time you come to the end of the chapter, this miracle is so significant, it sets the tone. By the time you come to the end of the chapter in verse 60, it reads, On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? On hearing what Jesus is laying out in terms of what it means to be a disciple, they say, This is hard. I mean, who in the world can live like this? And then down to verse 66, it says, From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And guess how many he's left with? Twelve. He's left with twelve. And five thousand turned away. This miracle sets the tone for the entire chapter. It's a really significant miracle. The details of that miracle are given to us from verse 1 down through verse 15. First main section. The second section is verses 16 down through verse 21. And that's a familiar miracle as well. That's the walking on the water scene. See, what's happened is Jesus performs this awesome miracle. The crowd sees the miracle. And they're going to make Jesus king whether he wants to be king or not. Now, up through the first six chapters, this 5,000 crowd's been really aggressive. They're continually coming to Jesus. They're pressing him about being their king, just going in and declaring uh, that he's the Messiah. They've been pressing him on this. But he's constantly been withdrawing from this crowd. Now, again, that's really aggressive language. They're saying, we want you to be king. We want you to be our king. And Jesus constantly withdraws from them because the kind of king they want is not the kind of king that he came to be. So in verse 14, back in the first section, it says, after the people saw the miraculous signs that Jesus did, they begin to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So he had to run away from them because he didn't want to be the kind of king that they wanted him to be. So he runs, the, he runs away from them. Verses 16 through 21, which is the next section, that happens as a result of his running away. He runs up the side of this mountain. He hangs out there until the evening time. The disciples, when Jesus does not come back down, they get into a boat and they head across to Capernaum. In this gospel here, John's gospel, um, you don't have much reasoning behind that in other words why they did that. In Matthew, Mark and Luke, it actually says Jesus tells them, "Hey, go to Capernaum and I'll catch up with you." It didn't say that in this gospel, but it's the same probably the same kind of thing that's taking place. Jesus runs up the side of the mountain. There's some understanding that they're going to go to Capernaum. So when Jesus doesn't come back down the mountain, they're probably thinking, "Hey, where is he at? I don't know. I'm hungry. He can swim." So they jump into a boat and they go across the lake to Capernaum. In the middle of the night, Jesus gets hungry too. <laughs> That's Jeremiah translation. And um, so he sneaks down the side of this mountain away from the crowd. He walks across the water so the crowd doesn't see the miracle. He gets into the boat and they immediately arrive over in Capernaum. Now, verses 22 begins the third section. Verses 22 down through verse 59. It's a huge section. This is where we're going to be this weekend. This week. This is where we're going to be this week. Verses 22 through the, uh, verse 59 is focused on the 5,000 crowd. It begins by uh, the morning arriving, and they're looking around for Jesus. In fact, they probably send scouts upside uh, up the mountain. Uh, hey, no one can find him. They peer under every rock, look in every cave, and hey, he's nowhere to be found. Uh, not only that, but the disciples have got him to a boat, and they're gone. So they say, we've got to do something. Uh, we've got to find where he's at. There's some boats that arrive in Tiberias. From Tiberias on this shore, uh, probably hearing about the miracle. They want to be a part of this. So uh, they say, Listen, Jesus is gone. Let's go find him. So they they deduce probably he went to Capernaum. So they get into boats and they head across to Capernaum. Now, commentators don't say much on this. It's not mentioned in the passage. But you have 5,000 people going to look for Jesus in Capernaum. Um, You and I know they don't have a love boat, (laughs) Uh, no luxury cruise liner. Uh, they've got fishing boats. Um, can you imagine what that scene would have looked like when you have 5,000 people into 12 to 15 member fishing boats uh, going across this big lake, this great armada of ships in, in this little town, the fishing community of Capernaum. And uh, they go in and they hunt for Jesus. Now they find him and this, uh, this dialogue begins. Jesus just plain flat addresses the crowd. And he, he, he just gets really aggressive, and he spills out the message for them. We're going to go over that this week. But he spills out the message for him. When we're talking about being a Christian, the real deal, plain, flat, come down to it, I want to be a follower, a disciple, a Christian, this is what we're talking about. He lays that out in this chapter. This is what it looks like. And uh, all of this takes place, and this is really significant, all of this takes place, verse 59 tells us, while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Okay? So this took place in the center of town. And we're going to get to that this morning a little bit, talk about what a synagogue is. But he gets down to the center of town and they track him there. So all this takes place in the center of town. The last section, which is the fourth section, is verses 60 to the end of the chapter. And that's where you basically have the decisions that are made. Um, they're either going to follow him or they're not going to follow him. And the vast majority do not. In fact, after they do not follow him, by the time you come to the end of this gospel, they're the ones that are chanting for his crucifixion uh, for Pilate. And that's really uh, um, that's really made plain in Matthew's gospel. Um, but the decision is made here in chapter 6. Now, I've really been interested in this, this 5,000 crowd because of how they respond. But another group has also surfaced in the chapter that I want to look at, and they're the Jews. And uh, they come about around verse 41. And I'm going to read just verses 41 uh, and down through verse uh, 50, which will be our passage this morning. And this will familiarize a little bit with the Jews, and then we're going to walk through some of this. Beginning at verse 41. In light of what Jesus has been talking about, in light of the message... Everything he's been saying to the 5,000 crowd, another group surfaces. They're not a part of the 5,000 crowd. These are the Jews. And the Jews are those who are the leadership of Israel. He's not talking about the nationality people. Uh, the Jews is a phrase, that term is, a, uh, is used by John to describe those who are hostile against Jesus' ministry. They not only do not believe, but they're hostile against what he's saying. They don't buy in. They don't believe. They're not following Jesus and they make it known. Hey, we're not into it. We're not only not following you, but we're opposed to what you're saying. They, they surface here in the chapter. Verse 41, it says this. At this, which means in response to what Jesus just said, the Jews begin to grumble about him because he said, and specifically it's quoted, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? And Jesus says, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and may not die. I am the living bread. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now again, the conversation is going to go on, and they're going to grumble some more. Uh, they're going to get upset about what he said some more. But I really want to look at this first, this first opening verse. Um, uh, address to these uh, to the Jews, and the five thousand crowd are there those who are have followed him over, they claim to be disciples, but they 're not they think they 're following but they 're not and the Jews here surface, and the Jews are the ones who are hostile against jesus ministry now ah, good to see you this morning Good to see you this morning. We need to hurry because pastor said I need to have you out here by 2.30. So we really need to step on this. But uh, I want to take just a second if I can, and I want to introduce this group. I've really been intrigued, obviously by the 5,000 crowd, and uh, looking at the definition of Christianity that's given to him. But in the last few uh, weeks, I've really been interested with the Jews. And I've really given a lot of time to study them and and what makes them tick. And um, I struggle with them. See, the Jews are not, if I could describe them to you. See, the Jews are not the group that are estranged from um, religious stuff. In our culture, the Jews would be those who, though they're opposed to Jesus, they're not the ones that go to the bar on Friday night. Uh, They're the ones that are at revival Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. See, they're the religious ones. They're the ones who are always there. They're the ones who, uh, hey, not only abide by all the rules, but they're the ones who set all the rules. They're the trendsetters in the church. And if you've been around church any amount of time, you realize that they're the movers and shakers in every single church. Uh, In every single board meeting I've ever attended, praise God, it's not been a lot, but every board meeting I've ever attended, the pastor always proposed something. Everyone always waits to see who's going to vote first. And when he does, oh, or when she does, hey, they kind of follow suit. That's this group right here. Now, that's probably not in your church, but in all the other churches in the world. Uh, that's basically, you have that going on. And see, that's who this group is. Now, I'm not saying that to a particular person, that particular leader is bad. Obviously, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, if, they're, if you're going to talk about the Jews, if you want to understand who they are, this, this group is in that group. See, they're the ones who have been around from the beginning. They're familiar. They have the tradition. They have the education. They have all of that. I have struggled... With that group, how? Here's my. Here I want to propose a question to you. How is it possible? I, I became a Christian in 1995, and I've struggled with this because when I got to college, I was running into people who uh, had grown up in church. There, a lot of my friends, a lot of the group were, a lot of the people that I saw, uh, their parents were ministers. Uh, they had uh, not only attended church and been to all the team functions, they knew what district quizzing was, they knew what teen camps were, uh, they were on the NYI council, uh, I mean, they knew when to stand up, they knew when to sit down, they knew, uh, they knew all that kind of stuff. So when I, and I got to college, I come from a, you know, you're basically a neighborhood pagan family. And so uh, when I got saved and went to college and had my call to preach, I mean, it was, uh, I, was I was confronted with this group who had been raised all their life, and yet I had met people in that group that though they had went to church all their life, didn't want to be judgmental, but it would appear they didn't love Jesus. In fact, you, if you've been around the church any amount of time, I know you've seen those who grow up in the church, they know when to stand up, they know when to sit down, they know all the rules, they've been on the NY Council, they graduate from high school, and they never come back. How is that possible? That's this group. See, that's that, that's the group that I'm talking about. The group that's in the in the chapter that's opposed to Jesus, that's just dead set against him. They're the groups that hey, they have been around. They're the leaders of Israel. They're the teachers. They're the Pharisees. They're the they're not just the ones who went to college. They're the ones teaching at the college. See, I've struggled with that. When I was in college, uh, I, be, I to, uh, took an RA position because they were going to pay me, and so uh, I was the one who was in charge of a number, and you know, and handed out toilet paper and fines and that kind of stuff. Though I never did find anybody. And uh, I, I had to watch one room, and it was the party room. And uh, every, you know, it was the room that was closest by the door, and you had to kind of go to college to pick this up, but the partiers wanted that room. And I always thought, oh, I know who will take that room, the football players. No, it was normally occupied by, guess who? Religion majors. And I thought that was a joke. I thought, come on. That's so naive. The Religion majors? And I won't mention the name, but one that he got caught—he uh, got caught using drugs that year—and he was a youth pastor down the road in the town of the college, working with the teens. And uh, in fact, as I've been gone, and if any of you have went to a Christian College, um, I'm sure you've met—or uh, if you, uh, you know, especially if you were rowdy in college. Um, you know, they, I've had friends of mine who went to college and gotten their life right and living for Jesus and involved in the church and they would say, yeah, back when you were in college this person, this person, this person I'd see them at the parties see, I'd see them when they would leave Olivet and they'd go into Chicago or they would go down to Illinois State University and hit the party scene and, and the way they talked about it was this is my final time The time when, this is my final time to really cut loose I'll buckle down in seminary <laughs> I, I, I struggle with that see, how do you process that? See how how is it possible to come to that kind of conclusion? How how can you how can you grow up in church and hear the message and and be involved and and sing the songs and all of that stuff and then get out and not and not really not see what this thing is about? I mean, yeah, you went to church, you did all the things that a Christian does, you paid your tithe, you gave the evangelists fifty dollars, and we encourage that, and uh, you know you carried your Bible, you had your name on it, you paid attention in church, you sang in the choir, you on the t- you did all that stuff. And yet you somehow miss what the whole thing is about. And see, at one point in my life, especially as a young Christian, I would think that's not possible. And I meet that all the time. I see that all the time. In fact, it's not hard to see that. It's all over the television. You have uh, ministers and you, and, you, know, you have people that, uh, that are key figures in the church that are preaching and they're doing all these kinds of things. And then it's exposed that they've got this secret life going on. And it's obvious, it's, it's obvious that they don't know Him. That they've been involved in, in, involved in a religious system and not involved in the real deal lifestyle of a Christian. Am I, am I breaking through? Does that make sense? I've struggled with that personally. Just, hey, between you and I, I've struggled with that personally. See, how, how is it possible? How is it possible for this group to grow up in church and not see him? Not hear the message. Not get in on it. Not really see what's going on. Because there's no way they could see what's going on and live that kind of lifestyle. There's no way they could walk with Jesus and live like that. See, how is it possible? So I really got into the passage, and Jesus tells them why. He tells this group why. The Jewish leadership of Israel. Jesus has been telling, he's been presenting the message to this 5,000 crowd. The Jewish leadership of Israel stand up, and they're grumbling, which is a telltale sign that they don't believe. And we may look at that this week. That's a separate study. A telltale sign of not seeing the kingdom of God is Grumbling. You know what grumbling is, don't you? Let me you give me an example of it. Um, I don't know if I should. I don't want to get in trouble the first day, but uh, see, it's the group that Sunday morning in worship, God is moving. Uh, it's we've seen this. God's moving. People are getting saved. Uh, I mean, it's fantastic. And after the, after the service, it goes over, and it's just wonderful. And uh, everybody's, you know, down, people are crying, people are shaking hands, it's wonderful. And I go outside, and the pastor's cornered, and there's someone just laying into him. <laughs> They're just laying into him. Why? Because they moved the communion table. <laughs> and in midst of moving the communion table, they missed all that other stuff. They were so concerned. I go up to the pastor and say, "I'm so glad I'm an evangelist." I'm so <laughs> I praise the Lord. That's grumbling. That's in the midst of the, it's the they're so concerned they've missed everything that's gone on and that's all that they're focused on. See, it's the light bulb flickering in the sanctuary. What the pa- I don't know. It was just it, my, you know I, I couldn't focus. My whole morning's ruined because I couldn't hear what the pastor was. Their spiritual insight's so shallow that a flickering light bulb will distract them. Their worship is so shallow that drums will throw them off. Shouldn't use drums. Uh, see, it, it's, it's their worship is so shallow that little things, the peripheral non-essentials throw them off. Does that make sense? Obviously, we're not talking about that kind of stuff here. But to be honest with you, anymore, it's not prevalent in most churches. But we run into that once in a while. That's what it means to grumble. This group, has, they, they do not see Jesus. They're grumbling. They, they don't understand. They've missed it. They're the ones with the tradition. They're the ones that has been around the whole time. They've had the education. And yet they miss what's been going on. And they're grumbling against Jesus. Now, I try to address people like Jesus does. I was I, I wanting him to say shut up, but he didn't say that. I looked everywhere for it. I even looked in the original language and I couldn't find that. But uh, this is how Jesus says it. He says, stop. It is emphatic. He says, stop grumbling among yourselves. Basically, would you, would you quit it? Leave me alone. Would would you quit it? Stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me. Get this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We're going to tear that statement apart tonight. And this this is my favorite study tonight. Uh, This is a great one this morning, but tonight I want to tear through that statement with you. Jesus says to this group, "Do you know why you don't see? Do you know why you're grumbling?" Do you know how it's possible that you could go to church all your life, you could be involved, you could be teaching, you could be there from the beginning, and yet you absolutely miss the significance of what God is doing? And again, that's so significant in the chapter. Jesus is laying out his heart in this chapter, in chapter 6. He's laying out the message. In fact, everything is crystallized here. In other words, he's been presenting this. Everything he's been talking about for the past two and a half years of his ministry, he lays it flat here. Every miracle that he's performed comes together here. It's like this is the climax. This is what he's been waiting for. And it just, right over the top of their head. And Jesus says, do you know why it goes right over the top of your head? Because, and he says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, you haven't room responding to the Father. Why would you respond to me? See, Jesus was the demonstration of the Father in their presence. See, Jesus was the, he was the physical representation of what the God of uh, their forefathers, they had been exposed to, the law. See, everything they'd ever known about God was now put in flesh and dwelled right among them. And they missed Him. Now, that was a shocker for me as well. For example, when I first became a Christian, <laughs> I wasn't raised in church. Uh, I was raised, actually, Mormon which is not Christian. Um, But I was raised in a Mormon family, and and even then it was just, uh, we were more religious than Christian. Uh, You know, if I could again hit that for you again, I kind of covered it already, but... um, I never read the Bible. I mean, i heard the stories. I knew I Abraham was and Isaac. And, and I, you know, I knew that kind of stuff. And I knew who Adam and Eve and all that kind of stuff was. And I knew there were four Gospels, uh, though I thought they were all disciples, which they're not. And uh, so I knew some of the books in the Bible and they were there. Uh, but I'd really never read the Bible. And so um, when I first read the Bible, really sit down to read the thing, it was in 1995. And I was amazed and Amazed is maybe not the right word. I was shocked. It's kind of a shock amazement that it was almost hard for me to believe when I read the Gospels that God would come in the midst of His people. I mean, having worked with the people for His whole life, the law. I mean, the forefathers they had the teaching. This was the group that, if God showed up, this group would know Him. Obviously, the Romans would probably miss Him. The Syrians would probably miss Him. I mean, but this group would see Him because he, Hey, He's. That's His own. And yet Jesus comes and dwells among His own people and the leaders of Israel don't see Him. But the people down at the bar do. The prostitutes, they see Him. Could you imagine? It's not possible. Could you imagine a great revival sweeping through the metropolis of Coquille? And the church of the Nazarene not seeing it? But everybody else? You and I would say it's not possible. That's That's what they said. Now, I'm not saying that, but that's what they said. They said it's not possible. That's why I struggle with that. How is it possible that leaders of Israel, teachers, people that live down at the church never leave the church, priests, high priest stuff, God could come and dwell in their midst and they never see. They never catch him. They never even knew that he appeared. See, how, how is that possible? Well, Jesus says they had stopped, even though they kept up the religious lifestyle, they stopped responding to God. Because it's possible to come to church on Sunday morning and not get into him. We talk, we're going to talk about this this week, but there's a difference between showing up to church on Sunday morning and showing up to church on Sunday morning. We'll get to that in a second. There's a difference between, and he can tell us this, I'm not going to let him right now, but there's a difference between singing and worship. And you can come to church on Sunday morning and sing and not, never have got into worship. So you can come to church on Sunday morning and really not been to church on Sunday morning. You can come and put 10% in your offering, on the offering plate, and not have tithe. Because tithe is not just about 10% of your money. Tithe is an inside kind of a thing. Singing is singing. Worship is an inside to Him kind of a thing. Have you ever been singing before and in the midst of your song you realize, I left the iron on. I left the iron on. I told my husband to shut it off. He never does anything. And you go off on this trail and all of a sudden you're on the third stanza or whatever and you realize, oh, we're singing. (laughs) You've been singing. You've been singing and not have been worshiping. See, there's a difference. See, this group kept up all the peripherals. They kept all the outside stuff. They continued to go to church, they kept all the sacrifices, they did all the law, they kept all the rules, they wore the right kind of clothes, they said the right kind of things, they led the right kind of programs, they participated in all the different schedules, and yet they left Jesus out of it. They left the Father out of it. Jesus says, hey, it does not surprise, stop grumbling, he says, just stop it, stop grumbling. It doesn't surprise me. The reason you aren't responding to me, you haven't been responding to him. And if you're not into me, it's obvious you're not into him. And if you've never been into him, you're going to hate me, is what he says to them. And then he gives an, uh, this, in verse uh, 45, this uh, prophecy deal, which we're not going to go into. And he says, they will all be taught by God. But then he says this, everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. See, if you were, he says, if you were just mad after and into him, you wouldn't be able to miss me. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to miss me. And then he says this, in verse 47. I tell you the truth, or verse 46. He says, no one has seen... The Father, except the one who is from God. Only He has seen the Father. So Jesus says, listen, you haven't been responding to the Father, you haven't been listening to Him, you've been stuck in the religious circumstances of your life, and because of that, church is no more to you than just a building that you show up to and wear a certain kind of a clothes, and you've never got into Him. And because you've never got into Him, you don't see me move. You don't recognize me. Now that translates into our day. See, if you, the person that comes to church that's religious, and you can come to church and be religious. Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is getting into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, some are going to say, I preached in your name, I healed in your name, I prophesied in your name. And he's going to say, Hey, depart from me, you worker of evil. I never knew you. So it's possible to be involved in the religious stuff and not into the person. Very possible. And it's sad that many are going to say that. Which means many who come not into him. And so he says, listen. Even though you've been involved in the church stuff, you're not into me. And you need to understand that no one has seen the Father except the ones from God. Jesus says, I'm the only one that's seen him. Now, the word seen, there are two different Greek words for see that John uses. Actually, there's three. But there's two primarily one, primary ones that he uses. Okay? One is the Greek word, we translate it see, but it's the Greek word for physical sight. That I can look and physically see Scott. I can look out and physically see you. That's one Greek word we translate see. There's another Greek word that John uses that you translate see, but it's not the word for physical sight, it's the Greek word for perception. Perception. Let me give you an example of it. Turn with me really quickly over to John chapter 16. John uses it in this chapter. In fact, he uses both words in this chapter. In verse 16. John 16, 16. Jesus says... In a little while, you will see me no more. In fact, that's the Greek word watch. In a little while, you're going to stare at me no more. Quit looking at me. Okay, that kind of a deal. You're not going to physically be able to see me anymore. That's after his death. That's after his resurrection. That's after the 40 day appearances. That's when he ascends and he won't. Come, and the angel is standing there and says, listen, hey, he's going to come back just the way he left. You're not going to see him until that happens. This is what he's talking about. In a little while, you're physically going to see me no more. Then he finishes the sentence and he says, and then after a little while, you will perceive me which is the coming of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) When the Holy Spirit comes and lives in your life, you're going to see me in a way you've never seen me before. That's really significant. It's a whole different thing. Now, in John chapter 6, Jesus says, no one has perceived the Father except the one who's from God. Jesus says, listen, I am the only one. I am the only one that's seen the Father. So, in essence, what he's telling them is in the midst of all your religious activity, in the midst of all your religious work, in the midst of all the traditions, you've never seen him. Uh, for the longest time, and when I first read this, it brought back my early uh, Christian days, uh, being so scared. Uh, when I got to college and I saw the religion majors, I saw those, uh, you know, uh, people came out and, and that had been even professors that had been living these alternate lifestyles and, or just the way people acted at times. It scared me that if they're not in, how, how am I going to make it? I wasn't raised from the right family. I didn't have the right education. In fact, I was nervous to be at college. I was the kid that majored in high school in shop and uh, still didn't do too hot and, and uh, I finished fourth from the bottom of my class and the other three guys were my best friends. And that's not exactly, I mean, that was honest truth. I mean, I was just, I was a worthless, no good. I was booted out of the military for drug use. I was just a wreck in my life. And, and I mean, I, I was a waste of, a. if they're not going to get in, how is it possible for me to get in? I'm in trouble is what I was thinking. And what Jesus is saying is that no amount of church attendance can produce the Christian life. Church attendance is not bad, but showing up to church on Sunday is not going to cut it. Are you a Christian? Yeah, go to church on Sunday. That's not bad, but showing up to a building on Sunday is not. I mean, come on, man. Oh, well, I don't smoke, drink, or chew with good girls who do. Well, I'm happy for you, and that's great, but that doesn't make you a Christian. I read my Bible. I have biblical knowledge. Satan has biblical knowledge. I pray. Well, happy for you. But see, praying doesn't even... See, what produces... He's he's, he's looking at the leaders of Israel and he says, you're out. He cuts them out of it. You're not in. The message that I'm giving, the message I'm presenting, which leads to eternal life... The Christian, which is the life that we've been called to live, you're not embracing it. In fact, he says in verse 47, I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. If you'll believe me, that all the religious stuff, that all your activities, all the works, all the traditions, that does not produce the life that I'm calling you to live. In other words, I, I want you to be a Christian. Well, you need to come to church on Sunday. Yes, come to church on Sunday. But showing up to a building does not make you a Christian. See, the kind of life we're uh, talking about, the Christian life, is not a a description of a a set of rules. I'm a Christian. I'm living the Christian life. Hey, Jesus calls it eternal life. I'm living a Christian life that's not defined in terms of activities. Do you know how Jesus defines eternal life in this gospel? Really quickly, turn back to John 17. In John 17, Jesus begins to pray. This is so neat. He begins praying for uh, himself and he says, Father, the time has come in verse one, glorify your son that your son may glorify you for you granted him. Get this. You granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life. You want to know what the Christian life is? And eternal life is something we possess in the present right now. He says, you are, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. What's it mean to be a Christian? To know him. Amen. To know him. To see him move in your life. To come to church, and it's more than just a building kind of a thing. You, have yet you, my, my mammy, we, my descendants come from the south, so we don't have grandma and grandpa, we have mammy and pappy. And we would watch mammy leave the service, and she would scare me, because she, was, she talked about church, she was so odd about it. We would leave on Sunday morning and she would say He spoke to me. And I was like, Duh, he spoke to everybody. Hello? You weren't the only one in there. But she wasn't talking about the pastor. He moved me. Really? Were you in the wrong place? Well no, wouldn't pastor. He touched me. He punched you? No, I just see the way what she was talking about was not, hey, physical hearing the pastor. It was, she was involved, there was something she was involved in on Sunday morning that I wasn't involved in. She was a part of something, and a part of something I wouldn't be a part, uh, wasn't a part of. I, I, I'll be honest with you, I want that for you. I want, i am quite frank with you, I want that for your teens. Are you with me? I want that for your teens. Because wagging your finger in the face of your teens and making them to come to church on Sunday, although gr- is great, that is never going to keep them. And I'm tired of hearing parents. How's your teen? Oh, well, they're going to church. What does that mean? You know? See, it's more than activity kind of stuff. It's knowing him. It's participating in him. It's coming to church and, and wow, I was caught up in something that was, he was, he was there and I felt his presence and, and I saw him. And this is what Jesus is saying. See, you have all your tradition, leaders of Israel, all, uh, all the things you've done have not produced insight into who he is. In fact, I'm here in your midst preaching and you don't see me. So all your tradition, all of that kind of stuff, by itself, has not produced anything. Now, this leads us to a conclu- Conclusion. Well, then what in the world do I need to do in order to see him? If coming to church alone is not going to cut it, if paying my tithe is not going to cut it, if being a part of the program is not going to cut it, not that that stuff's bad and Christians do those things and they're needed, but if that alone does not cut it, what in the world does he want from me? Well, he says it uh, in verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. See, I am the focus of this whole thing. He says, your fathers, forefathers, ate the manna in the desert, which means they followed God. They they were the ones that were a part of the traditions. They ate what God told them to eat. They did what, and yet they died. He says, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat, not die. what he says is, is all the tradition, that stuff will not produce the kind of life knowing him. They died. That the life that he's talking about is knowing him, intimacy with him. That's eternal life. And all the things that your forefathers did led to death. I am here, and partaking of me, getting wrapped up in me, eating me, taking me in your body, getting, I mean your life completely absorbed around me. That's what brings knowledge of him. That's what brings excitement. That's what brings passion. Literally, coming to And this was so encouraging, especially for a bonehead like me, is coming to church, never ever having been uh, 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 raised in the traditions or familiar with when to stand up or when to sit down, I was able to participate. I was able to know. I was able to walk in intimacy. I was able to live the life he called me to live because I was plain flat mad after the person. I was wrapped up in him. Now, you might say, give me a quick example of this. Oh, I'm glad you asked, really quickly. Turn back with me to John chapter 3. This is an older study, but it's the same thing that Jesus has been talking about for six chapters because he's, he's been talking about this. In chapter 6, <laughs> this is so neat, in chapter 6, you have two groups of people that are present. You have Jews and disciples. In other words, you have people who are not in and people who are in. And it's backwards. See, if you were to look at the people that, okay, people who are not in, you would say, okay, those would be the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the harlots, the ignorant fishermen yet they're in. And you look at the people, they'd say, they've got to be in. They come to church every Sunday. They pay their tithe. I mean, they run the church. They preach. They've got to be in. They're out. Okay, That's what's going on in chapter 3. You have leaders of Israel. You've got Jews. You've got the tradition, all of that. They don't see Jesus move. You've got ignorant fishermen. They do see. They have insight into who he is. In chapter 3, Jesus is in a conversation with, you know what? I should go back to chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2. It's just one page. It's just one page. In chapter 2, Jesus comes down to the temple because it's tied to chapter 3. In chapter 2, Jesus comes down to the temple, and verses 12 through the end of the chapter is the temple story. And verses 12 down through verse 16 tells us what Jesus does. And you know what he does it's the cleansing of the temple. He comes in, he's turning over tables, he's scattering coins of money changers. He grabs these cords. He makes them into a really handy whip and he starts going through the place. He's cracking over here. He's slashing over there. He gently ushers out animals because he loves animals. But he's going through that place just causing a a, a ruckus in the whole place. Just having at it. And it's interesting the insights to that. Some look at Jesus and and they don't see the significance. They don't see what God is doing. Other people do. Other people look at it and say, oh, I see exactly what God is doing. Now, the first group that's presented are the disciples. The disciples. Verse 17. Now remember, the disciples are the ignorant fishermen. See, they're the Peter, they're the Math, they're, they're ta- I mean, Matthew, tax collector kind of people. I mean, come on, that, how could they see? And it's interesting that when Jesus comes down to the temple, y- you can look in the passage. Jesus doesn't look over there and say, "Now pay attention, I'm getting ready to do something significant." He doesn't do that. See, on the way down to Jerusalem, he doesn't. He's not hinting. There's no kind of, "I wonder what's going to happen at the temple today." See, he's not prepping them. He comes down to the temple and he's overwhelmed with passion and just bam! And so the disciples get the bucket of cold water in the face just like the Jews do. And yet they both respond differently. Verse uh, verse, uh, 17 says, His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. In other words, the disciples attach prophecy to what he's done. They see the significance. Hey, this is what God's zeal is born in his life. And and all of this flows out of the heart of God and the way God views what's going on down in the temple. They, They see that. But here's what the Jews see. Verse 18, the next verse. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all these things? In other words, who do you think you are? And Jesus says, "Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in 3 days." And the Jews are like, "You're weird." It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to tear it down in 3 days. What temple was Jesus talking about? His body. Look how the disciples respond. The end of that verse, verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said, then they believed the scripture that the words that Jesus had spoken. The disciples see it. The Jews did not see it. In the midst of all their tradition, God moves in their midst. Leaders of Israel don't, disciples don't, or disciples do. And of course, you come down to, okay, how did disciples get in it? And how did, the, how did the leaders of Israel not get in it? Well, the disciples obviously went to Northwest Nazarene University. That's what it was. Yeah, probably went to NTS and yeah, certainly. Paid the disciple good, uh, you know, paid the evangelist good when he was there. And, and uh, you know, they, uh, you know, hey, they did offerings and they, they participated. And no, that's not why. Why did the disciples get in on it? They were wrapped up in Jesus. They were wrapped up in Jesus. Leaders of Israel, they had their tradition. They had the right education. They had the right schools, and they missed it because they weren't wrapped up in Him. They were not wrapped up in Him. See, they didn't come to church on Sunday morning going, oh, I want you to speak to me this morning. They went to church on Sunday morning because, well, that's what we do on Sunday morning. Now you come into chapter 3 really quickly. In chapter 3, Nicodemus is there. And Nicodemus comes to talk to Jesus. And again, Nicodemus is, and I, I won't go through all the grammar, but it's amazing how John presents him. John just doesn't say that he's a Pharisee. He said he's a man of the Pharisees. And, that's a, and I don't want to go through all the grammar, but that's grammatically a way for John to say, if you know anything about Pharisees, which this, the, the recipients of this gospel would have, if you know anything about Pharisees, hey, Nicodemus is one of those. Okay, I mean, he is a, he is a Pharisee. I mean, he is a top-notch. He has the education. And not only that, but Nicodemus has a good heart. He becomes a, go- he becomes a disciple at the end of this gospel. So he has come out in the middle of the night to seek Jesus, to talk to him about these kind of things. And he's curious. Listen to his language in verse 2. He says, Rabbi, I know. He says, we. In other words, he has constituents. But he's expressing his own heart. I know you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. I mean, there's something about you. And look what Jesus says. I tell you the truth, no one can see. Guess what that word is? Perceive. No one can perceive what went on down in the temple unless you're born again. See, your traditions cannot produce that. Your education cannot produce that. See, there's no amount of education, there's no amount of talent, there's no amount of tradition, there's no amount of church attendance that can replace Jesus in your life. And he tells this to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is shocked. In fact, you come down to verse 9, Nicodemus says, how can this be? And Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher, you don't understand this? And then he says this, I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. Who's the we? Some people say, well, it's God. No, it's the disciples who came down to Jerusalem with him. Jesus looks at, the, at Nicodemus and he says, we, hey, the disciples see seen it. Hey, the disciples getting on it. Hey, they've experienced. See, the disciples are living in ways that they couldn't live. They're seeing things that they couldn't see. They're a part of things they shouldn't be a part of. Why? Oh, they're really smart. No. They went to the right schools. They're Nazarene, praise the Lord. Well, No. How did the disciples see that? They were after Him. They were in love with Him. They were wrapped up in Him. Jesus says, no one, can come to the, no one can come to me unless they're wrapped up in Him. Wouldn't it, I'm, here's, here's, what I'm, here's what I'm just so... I felt so sorry for the Jews. Wouldn't it be terrible to come to church your entire life and miss Jesus? And I have people say, that's not possible. Folks, it's possible. It's possible to come and be wrapped up in religion and not be in Jesus. I want to ask you this morning, um, and I know you just met me, and I normally the first service, everybody sits back and goes, do I hate him or do I like him? <laughs> Seriously. Tonight will tell, because only probably five or six of you will show back up. <laughs> but Sunday morning is normally the kind of proceeding time, so I hate, to, I hate to spur this on you, but uh, this, this matters to me. This really matters to me. Uh, this is not a job. Uh, this is not something that I do for kicks. It's not just traveling and, hey, uh, this is the life. This is what I just want to give my life to. This is the message. It's more than just showing up to a building. It's more than wearing the right clothes. It's more than saying the right things. It's more than just staying out of pornography. It's more than just not lying or stealing. See, this is about Him. It's about knowing Him. It's about coming in a service, no matter where you're at in the country. And He falls. And people literally falls in the midst of this and is involved. And people see Him and experience Him. And, and the number one qualification for that in your life is being into him. You don't have to be smart,. Okay? You don't have to have all the tradition. you don't have to be raised in church. You have to have one, there's one characteristic. It's being flat, wrapped up in Jesus. I want to ask you that morning this morning, do you have that? I mean, are you wrapped up in Him, not just a Sunday thing, but a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I came to a conclusion I've been saying this a lot lately but I came to a conclusion when I was saved, God opened my eyes that I had nothing in common with Him. I had nothing in common with Him. The only thing I had in common with Jesus is that I wanted to go to heaven. I didn't like what He liked. I didn't feel the way that He felt. I didn't look at women the way He looked at women. I didn't look at men the way He looked at men. My entertainment choices weren't His entertainment choices. My sense of humor wasn't His sense of humor. The way that I I felt about the guy on the highway he drove by me, tried to run me off the road... Telling me I'm number one. See, the way I looked at that guy, he didn't look at that guy. the, The jokes I laughed at, he didn't laugh at. We had nothing in common, but I wanted to go to heaven. That's pathetic. I was not a Christian. And therefore, Jesus invited me into him. Getting wrapped up into what he's wrapped up in. Feeling the way that he feels. Seeing the way that he sees. Being concerned about the things that he's concerned about. Pouring my life out for my wife the way he would pour his life out for his wife. We're the church, his wife. See, being involved with my kids the way he wants to be involved with my kids. Seeing the way he sees. Laughing at the jokes that he... Sharing the same sense of humor. Jesus talked about it in terms of tearing out your eyes and seeing with his eyes. Feeling with his heart. Do you have that this morning? Our brother's going to come and he's going to lead us softly, I think, in just a, a song in the background. And we're not going to tear long. I want to get you out of here. But uh, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. and um, Hey, no pressure on this. I meet people all the time who are just, I guess I would say, content with showing up to a building on Sunday. I preach in churches that run 4,000 and 5,000 once in a while. It always makes me chuckle because the pastor comes up to me and says, Now listen, good service this morning. I don't want you to be discouraged. And I'm like, excuse me? Not everybody's going to come back tonight. In fact, we'll probably have 50. And I'm like, was it something I said? He goes, no. Sunday morning we have our Sunday morning crowd. See, we have the people that the totality of their Christian experience with God is an hour on Sunday morning, and that's it. Let me be frank with you. There's a problem with that. That's not how church is described here. That's not the deal. Christianity is a 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, wrapped up in this person kind of a thing. (laughs) <laughs> that's what we're talking about and if you don't have that I want to invite you if you don't want that no pressure I don't rate my sermons based off your response I know it's truth. I'm experiencing it in my life but if he's speaking to you this morning and he's dealing with you on the insides and maybe you're saying stuff like I want to trade in that what I have for what you're talking about or maybe you're being more aggressive and maybe you're like, what, like me saying I'm so tired of being the way that I've always been I want to see the way he sees. Or maybe you're like the way that I am now. At the end of this message, I'm in love with Jesus and I'm a Christian. But I find myself responding because I I say to myself, I think to myself, I don't have that in my life like I want. I want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the truth of your word. We want to be wrapped up into you, Jesus. We want to be tight with you. I want to see the kingdom of God unfolding in my presence. I want to be able to go down to my job and walk out of there at the end of the day just singing praises to you because I see you at work in the life of my coworkers. And from your own mouth, the only way to see that is to be wrapped up in you. No amount of church attendance can replace you in my life. No amount of money that I give can replace you in my life. No amount of activity, no amount of service, no no amount of teaching Sunday school classes or or working in the nursery or mowing the church lawn or or building properties overseas, building see, no amount of that can replace a daily walking with you in my life. In fact, you can't be a Christian, Jesus, without walking with you on a daily basis. I want that in my life. And I, I need to restructure. I need to, re- I need to rephrase that. I want you in my life like that. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And I, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And I, I, I don't know. I, you have altars here, so I take it you guys use them and I take it people come and respond and pray. But I want to give you an opportunity this morning and I'll, 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 I'll come with you. You don't have to go by yourself. But if He's speaking to you this morning and you don't have that in your life, would you respond? Would you get up out of your seat? And would you come down? You'd be desperate enough to voice that in front of everybody, and just come down and kneel at the altar and say, "I, I don't have that the way I want it." In fact, I've probably been caught up into church, Jeremiah. I'm not mean. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I don't hate God, but I probably drift, drifted into religious stuff versus a daily walking with this person. We're just going to spend some time in prayer, and I want to give you the opportunity as as. Uh, As the music plays, and we're not going to tarry long, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. And then I'm going to close the service. Altars are open. Does anybody want to come? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed, no one's looking around. Let's get after him.